dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird kick a young deer off the road and went fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue what was throwing rocks in our vicinity. Good size rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. Uh, for a week, the, the town of Defiance was being harassed by a werewolf, and it's actually attacked two railroad workers, uh, killed livestock. You know, just a lot of weird stuff that was going on. during the intro, so I will do the intro again. I was just practicing. Uh, good Sunday evening. This is uh, Gunnar Monson, your host of Monster X Radio and the founder of the Sasquatch Coffee Company. And uh, you can find us at www.squatchcoffee.com. Uh, Sasquatch Coffee. Have you tried it yet, With me, as always, is my good friend and co-host of Monster X Radio, Shane, Hardcore Course, and Shane. How are you doing, buddy? Yo, doing well, Gunner. Uh, I thought maybe you had uh, disappeared on me. I stepped in a portal <laughs> temp- temporarily. I'm glad you're back. Yeah, I'm glad you're back. <laughs> you know, scary experience. Hor- horrifying experience. So. Yeah. No. <clears throat> it's doing well, doing so well. We were, so uh, Shane and I this morning... Uh, woke up in our research area. Um, we went out to did a little squatching this weekend. We were joined uh, Friday evening uh, by our friend uh, Larry Turner and uh, Cindy uh, Cadell. And, uh, and then Shane brought his uh, family up last night, and uh, we hung out in a, in our research area. Um, pretty quiet weekend for me. I, I know that... Uh, we had some uh, excitement Saturday morning um, when Larry uh, was showing us uh, one of the camp areas that uh, one of our research partners had a, a sighting in uh, last uh, September, September I believe it was, 
And uh, he caught sight of something. Uh, he described his bipedal walking along a, a trail um, very briefly. Um, I did not see it. I was not looking in the same direction, of course. Uh, so something interesting. I don't. Uh, I I went up there uh, and uh, looked around and did not find any evidence of anything, and I did not hear anything moving. Or so. It was. It was. Yeah. I you know. But of course, always interesting. In inconclusive, but interesting. So. Um, Good weekend. Did you? I I guess uh, with all the excitement, of course, I got woke up uh, to a flat tire this morning. And uh, did you uh, hear anything last night? I know you did some therming of the area. Now uh, you know beautiful weather. Great time to be out um, in the Pacific Northwest. Amazing weather uh, overall. No, quite weekend. You know, uh, really quite weekend. Um, didn't really find anything of interest, uh, didn't have anything really occur, but uh, had had a great weekend out um, with you guys and, uh, you know, did some hiking and therming and, and uh, the usual, yeah, but overall quite weekend uh, and uh, nothing to uh, bring back home other than, um, you know, we had a great time, uh, as we always do, so... But there's much to be taken from those times out in the out in the field when nothing happens. You know, you take note of that stuff, and uh, and it happens more I was times just than not. Touch on that. That's, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, more. I think people think you know uh, that going out and and doing Bigfoot research is is always something always happens, and that like you were saying, more often than not, um, you get skunk. And uh, but uh, we did have you know an interesting. Incident uh, yesterday morning, but for, for the most part, it was very quiet. So, our guest, I'm going to introduce our guest today. Um, for anybody who's into Bigfooting and is a fan of the, the show Finding Bigfoot on Animal Planet, uh, he needs no introduction. Uh, Cliff Barrickman is uh, a resident of Portland, Oregon, and one of the uh, co hosts of the show on Animal Planet, Finding Bigfoot, which uh, they are just started up a new season. Um, we're excited to, to talk to uh, Cliff and to find out what's up with him on the show and and his own research. So um, without further ado, I'm going to bring our guest on. Good evening, Mr. Berkman. How are you? Hi, gentlemen. I'm doing great, thank you. And also thanks for inviting me on. Oh, you bet. Thanks for joining us. With me is uh, Shane. Yep. Say hi, Shane. Uh, hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hello, Cliff. How you doing? <laughs> all right, Shane. Well, glad We're to have you here, still... Cliff. Um, I was going to get right to some questions. Uh, you know, specifically, you know, um, exciting uh, times for you. You got this new season, uh, Finding Bigfoot, that just aired last Thursday. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the Finding Bigfoot show uh, and uh, some of the places that you're going to in, in this particular season? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the season premiere was on Thursday, and we hit the Mount Shasta area for that. 
Um, we invited a team of paranormal folks um, who think Bigfoots uh, are a lot weirder than, say, I do, out with us and, you know, thinking that, okay, well, so many Bigfooters out there entertain those thoughts that Sasquatches are supernatural or paranormal or something weird, right? Um, I don't personally ascribe to that. I think there might be other uh, explanations for those weird things, Um that themselves are weird, of course, but maybe Bigfoots have nothing to do with it. But still, we thought that enough of our uh, of our brethren in Bigfoot land go that direction that it's about time we do an episode featuring some of those ideas. Um, and th- that was around Matt Shasta. And I'll tell you, Shasta's super squatchy, but what a lot of people don't realize um, – uh, is that some of those places that we went around the Matt Shasta area are very historically significant. Um, for example, if you saw the episode, I believe it was the first night investigation um, where I was at with Matt and Renee was at with RPG. Um, maybe it's the second one. I don't remember. But anyway, uh, at that location, we were at Basin Gulch. And if you've been in Bigfoot land for more than a few years, you probably know Basin Gulch is, was the haunting grounds for the Bay Area group. Um, George Haas, Archie Buckley, and, and like that whole gang. The, the, probably the single most pioneering early group of Bigfooters ever. Um, and that was where they went. And, of course, Bigfoots are still there. I've had action at Basin Gulch as well and in the surrounding area. Um, the area is, has been red hot for 50-something years now. Um, so that's actually where we saw that mountain lion. Um, we didn't get anything else that night, but, man, it was awfully cold, I'll tell you. Um, so that, that alone to me would be like for a Bigfoot nerd like myself, that would be enough for me to tune in. It's like Basin Gulch. I want to see what happened there. Of course, it wasn't featured prominently on the show because the vast majority of Bigfooters nowadays are kind of new and they don't know who the Bay area group is or was, I guess, cause we're no longer um, a group. Um, in fact, I think most of the major members are now dead, unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, so that to me is enough reason to tune in. But then again, I'm like an ultra Bigfoot nerd. But for the rest of the season, we mostly uh, goof around in the south because we were filming um, during the winter time, and the south is at least accessible during the winter as opposed to you know the northeast or wherever else. Um, so most of our episodes are Mississippi and North Carolina and uh, what was it, Arkansas. However, I believe – I could be wrong because I, I, I didn't see the promo, but I believe next week we're in south-central Oregon. Once again, Oregon has drawn us back, lured us back with its squatchy allure. Um, but this time we were personally invited by the, the Klamath Indians to go Bigfooting on their reservation um, the, the, uh, on the, just the east side of the, uh, the Cascade Mountains, south of Bend, right outside Klamath Falls. And um, I was interested in that because I've never gone Bigfooting on the east side of the Cascades, at least not that far east and certainly not that far south. And almost no information comes out of there. But sure enough, once we got on the reservation and started talking to the locals, like the Bigfoot reports were just dripping off the walls. There were so many of them. We spoke to excellent, fantastic, very experienced witnesses who had seen them with their own eyes, good daylight sightings, maybe five, six times. And I have absolutely no, no reason to doubt them. Um, the stuff they were saying is spot on, stuff that you probably would only know about if you had been around them a bunch. Um, and, of course, the locations are um, off the grid, basically. No one's allowed in there unless you're a tribes member. So we were escorted there by the tribes folk and, uh, and given blessings and knowledge and access to their land. And I can't say how accommodating the entire uh, – um, the, the entire this uh, – the, the whole area was not only on the res, but also off the res as well. Just 
we're all blown away by the kindness and welcoming attitude of, of the locals down there, man. It was just awesome. Mm. Oh, fantastic. You know, you've been, you, you've had the fortunate, um, you've been very fortunate, Cliff, by uh, talking to a lot of Native Americans and being invited to different places uh, by Native Americans, uh, you know, to, to look into and talk to the, the elders about the subject of Sasquatch. You know, Mount Shasta, uh, fantastic area, and you're originally from California, Mount Shasta ever on your radar um bef- you know before this before finding Bigfoot Oh of course in fact I spent uh, quite a few nights out there um Bobo and I um were bigfooting once and actually on his birthday which is coming up April 15th tax day ironically enough is Bobo's birthday um uh, I remember back in maybe 2006 or 7 or something we were just uh just west of the Shasta area uh, not too far at least a place called Scotts Valley, if I remember right. Uh, we ran into him there. I've done work with both Matt and Bobo um, outside of Dunsmuir. I've gone bigfooting myself just north of Shasta and also on Shasta itself. Um, yeah, the, the, I've been to um, Shasta, Mount, either the mountain itself or the general area, uh, probably four, five, six times or more uh, before I returned there. Although um, all that stuff was back in the 2000s, early 2000s. I had not been there, I don't think, since 2008 or something like that. So it was, it was a nice return. Fantastic. You know, the, uh, one of the other areas down there that I, I, I'm, I'm from California myself uh, before I moved up here. I moved up here in 2008. One of the other areas down in California that I was always interested in was Yosemite. Um, I, I, you know, I liked San Bernardino, some of the outlying areas. When you lived in California – and you've been at this for 20-plus years. What other areas in California specifically, I mean, besides maybe uh, some of the more obvious ones, were you interested in or you've taken reports from that you found compelling? Oh, well, outside the most obvious areas, probably the first thing that jumps to my mind is uh, Los Angeles County, which nobody thinks of as Bigfoot country. But sure enough, um, I saw a footprint in the ground there myself, led there by a witness, um, a 15-inch footprint. Uh, I, I think it was on the. I have to check my notes, but I believe it was on the east fork of the, uh, the San Gabriel River, up in the Angeles National Forest. Um, they do cruise through there every once in a while. They are fairly rare down there. I think they're just passing through for the most part. But the um, Los Angeles County, and even down in the Orange County, there's a smattering of reports all the way down there. Uh, Bobo knows. Uh, I, I believe there's an Indian reservation just east of, well, pretty far east of San Diego, but between there and like the Salton Sea area that has stuff going on. I was just speaking to uh, one of the best, in, one of the best researchers I know, a guy named Matt Pruitt. I was just talking to him the other day, and he was detailing um, how he was speaking to a witness in that same general area um, that seemed to have a number of. Uh, he was a long-term witness who had seen them for about 10 or 15 years, and all that activity has died down now. But all that stuff was in San Diego County as well. I've never actually gone bigfooting in San Diego, but I have gone bigfooting in Los Angeles, uh, the area, like the Angeles Crest area. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one spot I've always wanted to go check out is Crystal Lake. A lot of stuff used to come out of there. I don't know if it still does or not. Gorman, off the five near the grapevine. Um, there's a lot of great reports as well. Excellent witnesses, uh, land surveyors seeing these things, hunting boar and stuff. I've taken footprint uh, um, reports on the Ventura, Los Angeles County line. Um, and then to see what, what I think is going on is that the Sasquatches in the Sierra Nevada mountains, particularly in the Southern Sierras, you know, the golden trout wilderness and, uh, you know, that general area, the Kern river, 
I think they, they sometimes, for whatever reason, probably mostly in winter, swoop down and cruise through the Tehachapi Mountains, which connects to the uh, Los Angeles area mountains. And from there, from the mountains outside Los Angeles, it's, uh, basically, uh, it's basically a straight shoot all the way up to Big Sur. Now, we know there's Sasquatches in Big Sur. There's amazing witnesses up there, um, good researchers in the general area, in the Bay Area as well, that uh, follow up on these things. Um, so how would they get there? Well, they probably aren't crossing the valley floor, the central valley. They're probably moving through the mountain ranges. And when you think about it, once you get about you know, 10, 15 miles from the coast all the way up and down California, there's a lot of nothing. And, and Sasquatches mm-hmm. don't really need that heavily forested mountain range like everybody thinks they do. I've been to a lot of places in the past five years in particular on the show that show me that what most people think about Sasquatches is kind of just incorrect. Now, um, so these like kind of barren hills and stuff, they would be happy to cruise over those barren hills and whatnot and then duck down into those river valleys during the day. You know, if they only travel over the open space at night, they've got the whole area to themselves and no one really lives out there to see them, or at least so few people are out there to see them that they'd almost never be reported, which seems to be the case. Um, But gosh, I mean, as far as places I've gone bigfooting down there and whatnot, I could, you know, I could just dominate the rest of the show on that alone. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Instead of dwelling on one, instead of dwelling on one question, like, let's go. Whatever, yeah. whatever else you guys want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say the Tehachapi area is pretty interesting to me. I used to do a lot of work out there by Edwards Air Force Base, Hesperia. You got the Antelope Valley there. Um, it's real deserty, but you got these huge mountains. Like Tehachapi's on a mountain, and and you got these. It, there actually are a lot of forested areas up there, and you get a lot of snow. Um, truly a fascinating area with a lot of reports that you know a lot of people don't know about or not are, are not aware of, and uh, I figured you being in California and researching, you would be on top of a lot of those. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, they're a lot closer to home than anybody thinks. You know, it's kind of I've always compared it to like fishing or something like surf fishing, for example. You know, most surf fishermen go up to the ocean and they cast way out there as far as they can. Well, they're casting past the fish, man. The fish are practically at their feet. And the same thing's true with Bigfoot. You know, you don't have to go, you know, you don't have to drive six hours and then hike four more into the middle of a wilderness area to find them. They're right at the edge of civilization. Um, You just don't, you just got to know where to look. And wherever you look, it turns out you can find the same patterns there. Like you mentioned Antelope Valley, right? Down there in Southern California. The Antelope Valley back in the 1970s had a rash of Sasquatch sightings. And everybody kind of wrote it off saying, oh, it's kind of deserty. It's kind of this and that. Oh, it's Southern California. They would never be down there. Well, that's nonsense. Let's, if you look at why they were there and what the situation was there, then you see. Um, back in the 70s, the Antelope Valley was like covered in this like six or seven foot tall high grass. You know, so you can't see over the stuff. And, and what happens in the grass is that rabbits live in the grass. And they had a population boom, like a serious problematic population boom. And you can look this up. You know, so it was in the news in the 70s. Um, well, it turns out that the Sasquatches moved in to take advantage of that. Um, one of the patterns that we see again and again is that wherever there is too much of a certain kind of food item – very often Sasquatches are seen in that type of area, whether in this case happened to be rabbits, you know, rabbits were coming out of everybody's ears down there. So the Bigfoots moved in to kind of help cull the population. Um, Same thing happened in Pacific city on the Oregon coast. A number of years back, I spoke to one botanist in the Sierras, you know, he saw this big one walking around by 
scared him, and he went away. And I said, well, did you notice, like, too many deer or too many, you know, something else in the area? And he goes, well, you know what? There were more brook trout than I've ever seen in my last 30 years of working in the Sierras. And they're all six to eight inches long, kind of too small for the anglers to really take notice of. But they were so thick you could practically walk across them on the river. I said, oh, there you go. Yeah, wherever there's too much of one kind of food, the Bigfoots will eventually find them, you know, as will the coyotes and the mountain lions and the bobcats and everything else that has to eat, you know. Well, that's one of the the questions that people ask is how how does a population of of an animal this large, you know, sustain itself? And I'm like, well, first of all, how does a bear sustain itself? You know, they they eat the same kind of thing, so... um, one of the, I'd like to dig down a little bit. You were saying there's a lot of misconceptions that you've um, learned about that, that people hold about Sasquatch during your time on finding Bigfoot. What are some of the other misconceptions? Oh, well, the terrain's the big one. You know, if you go to someplace like the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, it's like the, uh, the, some of the least likely habitat you'd ever run across for Sasquatches. But sure enough, they're there. They're guaranteed they're there. Um, we ran into one there. I mean, I, I not only are the stories indicative of the presence, but I myself still doesn't have a good explanation for what we ran into that night. Um, so, because you go to the Pine Ridge Reservation, it kind of looks like a rolling flat Kansas and stuff like that. But there's these deep arroyos, these deep, often dry riverbeds that are bushy and nasty and thick and pokey and it's nasty places to hang out. And that's where the Bigfoots hang out. They love that stuff. There's no accounting for taste, right? Um, but they're <laughs> usually seen crossing the flat plain areas at night. You know, that's where they come out of their safe hidey holes and they walk the two or three miles to the next river basin or whatever. And that's when they're usually seen. And they forage along the way. Um, very often uh, in like trash cans uh, in Native Americans' backyards and stuff like that, or picking up a stray cat here and there, or whatever else they find. You know, I think a big part of their um, diet is actually rodents, of all things. You know, I mean, we always harp on the deer angle on the show, and the Sasquatches hunt deer. Um, actually, I mentioned the Bay Area group earlier in the show at Basin Gulch and stuff. That's one of their uh, pioneering discoveries, as far as I'm concerned. They, Archie Buckley specifically, um, is the first guy that I'm aware of to really publish the connection between Sasquatches and deer. Um, but yeah, but these Sasquatches on the Pine Ridge Reservation, they're few and far between, just like everywhere else. But they're living in the thick, nasty stuff and going across these desert-like plains. Um, they've even been seen down in the Badlands area, which is like the last place you'd expect them. But if the season is right, the water is right, and the temperature and food items are present you know, that they are looking for, they are going to be there. Um, another big misconception I'm finding um, is that people think that Sasquatches are the most reclusive animal and they don't want anything to do with human. And you can even hear Renee say stuff like that in the show. She brings up, like, I don't see why an animal that's trying to remain hidden would expose itself, blah, 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 blah. Right? You've heard the argument before if you've seen this show. Well, there's right. no reason to think whatsoever that Sasquatches are, even, are any more reclusive than anything else. Because if you look at the habits of pretty much most of the big animals – um, like bull elk, for example, or bear, or mountain lions and stuff, they all kind of mirror average Bigfoot behavior, in my opinion. Um, Bigfoots might be better at hiding. Bigfoots might be better at a lot of things than these other animals, but they don't seem to show any greater amount of apprehension to humans than these other animals do. Um, like, I, I don't know, you guys are in the woods a lot. It's usually the hind end of it as it's running away. Well, um, that's the same thing as Sasquatch, right? And sometimes they stand there and look at you for a few seconds and then do so. So it's not that um, 
they're well, why would an animal who's so elusive show itself? Well, it's because that's what all animals do. If you're familiar with large animal behavior in general, then the behavior of the Sasquatch does not stand out as anything totally different. So um, off the top of my head, there's two stereotypes of Sasquatches that I don't think fit the bill, but that is so often the case with stereotypes of anything. Yeah, that's just, Animals, people, you name it. They just don't seem to fit the bill. Yeah, it's so unfair to you know profile Sasquatch. Yeah, and I'm I'm totally against yeah. uh, Sasquatch profiling. Yeah. You know, I think I, I my my vote my voting record shows that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that doesn't even speak to you know their level of intelligence versus other animals in the forest. They they may just have a more curious nature as opposed to, you know, they may not just be driven by uh, the need to eat and procreate and and drink water. They may have some curiosity. Oh, yeah, I think it's clear that they do, very clear that they do. Uh, they spend a lot of time looking at people that, that they could have done something different with their time except for looking. Uh, maybe it's a paranoia thing, like I'm going to check you out to make sure you're no harm. Maybe it's uh, there's nothing else to do here thing, so I'm going to watch it for a while. But it seems to me, and, I, and again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about everything I'm saying, really, because uh, there are no experts on Bigfoot. I mean, I, I just happen to have a lot of experience is all. So I've come to my own conclusions and hypotheses, you know. But uh, it, it very well could be that Sasquatches don't have a whole lot of problem finding food, um, and that's why they can spend the time watching people camp or do things. Um, or maybe they're just paranoid, making sure that they aren't you know, taking their deer. Uh, some people have put that uh, hypothesis out there, that Sasquatches are kind of possessive about their deer herds, you know, and they want to make sure that we're not going to cull it and whatnot. Um, yeah, but certainly their intelligence, I think, is probably – going to be their downfall eventually. Um, I, I think that's how most of the good pieces of footage were gotten, either stumbling upon them blindly on accident, like the Patterson-Gimlin film, or having one follow you around for, for a while during the night and then eventually somehow catching it on thermal, you know, like the Stacey Brown footage. Um, eventually someone will get more footage, probably capitalizing on their curiosity. I think it's their, their largest weakness that Bigfooters who are looking to film one um, can exploit. And that's what you and I have talked about that a little bit is that, that you really aren't interested in proving they exist or feeling you don't feel the need to prove they exist. You already are of the opinion that they do. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I've got no dog in the fight, so to speak, you know, it won't further uh, like, my scientific career, if they're proven or not, um, I'm confident they exist. And I don't see why I need to prove it to anybody else because I kind of don't care what other people think. Um, you know, if there's an old saying, like, if you're right about something, you don't need to prove it, you know, because it, right. the truth can withstand the scrutiny, so to speak, you know. Um, and also, more importantly for me, um, at this point in the game, and some people disagree with me, but I'm, I'm, I'm right on this one. Um, at this point in the game, um, to prove a species – you need a holotype. You need a type specimen to describe in a scientific paper um, under the scrutiny of other scientists. And that means a dead one because um, you aren't going to be able to capture one of these things. That's, or, well, I suppose you could. I mean, there's Jocko in the 80, 1888 or whatever that was. That, you know, I guess it's possible that you could try to capture one. Uh, but the, as Dr. Grover Krantz pointed out, and he was a strong advocate of killing one of these things for the purpose of science, um, the, the fastest, easiest, cleanest way to do so is with a bullet. Um, I don't advocate that. I think it shows a lack of respect and a lack of compassion towards the individuals 
that these Sasquatches are. They're not like a, they're not like you know herring or something like that, where there's tens of millions of them and they're all more or less the same. They're a great ape species, just like we are, or very similar to what we are, but also very similar to what the other apes are. Um, that means they're individuals and they have their moods and they have their personalities and they have their interests and they have, you know, they things they like and don't like. They are individuals, and that's something that gets lost, I think, with Bigfooters as well. They just group them into Bigfoots. Bigfoots do this, Bigfoots do that. Well, you can't say that because, like I said, they're individuals. They're rare. They're intelligent. They're, uh, they're, 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 they're self-aware, which I think is even more important. And something like that, an animal of that caliber, deserves um, to not be killed for the sake of our curiosity, which is kind of what it comes down to. Um, it's our curiosity that makes us think that we are masters of the planet and we can go killing other things just so we know more about them. Well, I think yeah, I told true. you they exist. Yeah. <laughs> right. I agree with you too. And I, uh, the argument people that are pro kill make the argument that we need to kill them to protect their habitat. And I always, my counter to that is there's plenty of known animals that we should be protecting the same habitat for already. We don't need to, to, uh, kill a, a rare species, a specimen of a rare species to protect the habit, habitat when we should already be being good stewards of the planet. So I find that as kind of a well, uh, poor argument. Well, we are clearly the most foolish monkey on the planet because uh, we're, <laughs> we're, you know, we're pooping in the jacuzzi and we're sitting in it right now. I mean, we're destroying our own habitat. So who the heck's going to want to protect the, Sas- the Sasquatch habitat when we're destroying the air we breathe? Now, there's, it's just ridiculous. We're polluting the water we drink and, and polluting the air we breathe. Do you think a species like that, like us, can do anything? I don't. I think it's ridiculous. Um, and honestly, the people who say we need to kill one to protect one and whatever else, and that's all fine and good. I'm glad your heart's in the right space. And I, I guess there's a certain angle that I can, I can understand that. Um, but you know what? The Bigfoots are doing an awfully good job protecting themselves at this point. Um, that's the bottom line. The, the best thing we can do for them is to leave them alone and then protect the land that they live on already. And luckily, they've been kind of pushed out of all the great areas. You know, so they, they live in some areas that aren't that great, you know, for the most part. Um, so we can protect those lands now. Um, for other reasons than the fact that our potentially our closest living relative, as far as species goes, shares that habitat with us. Um, we don't need them to be real to protect the, that habitat. So I, I don't find that as a very compelling argument. And, you know, and, and again, one will eventually die for the sake of the others. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. The species is, in fact, real. Um, some logger is going to roll one down when he's not paying attention or something, or, you know, some testosterone driven hunter is going to put a bullet in one's head or something to prove something to somebody, you know, for some, you know, uh, uh, something to happen to them in their past that they have to prove this stuff to somebody, whatever, or some good, well-meaning scientist is going to bring one down. And I can see a scientist trying to do it because they're stuck in the scientific dogma, dogmatic way of thinking that we have to kill these things to prove them. But eventually one will be brought in. So what I see my role for right now, at least, is um, I'm out there advocating compassion for these things, you know, respect. And let's learn about them because they're cool. And let's try to protect their land. You know, conservation before discovery is what I call that. Let's protect their land now so they'll have places, when, you know, when, when they're proven and stuff. Because 
what's they don't need our protection yet. They're doing really good by themselves. But as soon as the dead one is brought in and they're real and, and all the news guys are saying, oh, my gosh, these clowns on Finding Bigfoot were right or whatever, you know, whatever's going on. That's when they need our protection. That's when they need our protection because the human species has like the Midas touch. But instead of everything we touch turning to gold, it turns to crap. And as soon as we touch them, that's when they're in danger. So if I can get everybody on board now to love Bigfoots and show compassion for them and be excited about the species and learning about them, you know, that's going to serve them better. That's going to serve Sasquatches better when they're discovered to have an army of weirdos behind them um, just advocating for their protection and to, li- to leave them alone and stuff like that's, that's when we're going to be useful. Um, they don't need us now, but afterwards they're going to need us. So the let's talk a little bit about the the show. Um, I'm sure everybody would like to know: um, Is there plans for after this season? Is there plans for another season? Um, yeah, yeah. There's some tentative plans right now to go back on the road. We don't have locations planned or anything like that, but it, it looks like mm-hmm. we're going out for another run. Um, and that, of course, that's thanks to all of our uh, our viewers. Um, because uh, without you guys watching it, the show cannot go on. Um, I'm surprised it's gone on this long, but I'm very, very thankful that it has, um, for, mostly for the uh, the, the um, experience that it's offered to me. Um, and yeah, I've, traveling's okay. You know, I'd kind of rather be at home sometimes. But uh, but meeting the people, meeting the witnesses, going to Great Bigfoot Habitat in uh, so many of the states and, uh, and other continents as well has been just amazing. But it looks like we're going out for another one at this point. Um, and thanks for every thanks to everybody for watching. Um, and you know, uh, our biggest demographic is I think is probably young people and weird middle-aged people like myself. Um, and, and you guys too, I know you well, so, um, you're in there as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of people love the show and a special shout out to the people who hate the show because you guys can be more passionate about it than anyone else. Um, based on my Twitter and Facebook and all the hate and aggression and violence and homophobia and stuff that comes through through my to my Facebook and whatnot, um, you guys are by far the most passionate of all the viewers. And I don't know what you're doing watching it, but keep on watching it and keep on hating us because you're helping us stay on the air. So thank you very much to all the people who despise the show. Um, you probably do more help to us than um, almost anyone else. There's a good up yours to all your haters out there. (laughs) It is. I mean, it's funny because people take – it's a TV show first, you know, and it is – and I've talked to all the cast members except Renee about the, you know, the process. It's made for TV. It isn't exactly what – you know, it's the closest thing to real big for research that I've ever seen on TV. But it, it is made, you know, it's edited for TV to be entertaining. And you know, why don't they do this? They could just should go do this. You know, go start your own Bigfoot show. I, the argument that, you know, it, it's detrimental because people are out uh, howling in the woods now or knocking on trees or replicating things that they see on, on a finding Bigfoot. So as a researcher, I think it actually ups our... Uh, our obligation to be better researchers because there is that possibility that you, what you're recording, what you're experiencing could, I mean, I always picture this cartoon 
of one group of researchers on one side of a hill recording another group of researchers on another side of the hill, and they're, oh, listen to you. Know, that. And that, I, I'm sure that has got to have happened at some time. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, well, we've been hoaxed before, and I know that um, mm-hmm. whenever you go Bigfooting in some place like Salt Fork State Park in Ohio, you always have to be on guard because so many Bigfooters go to places like that. You always have to be on guard, basically. Um, sometimes if you find a good spot off, off, way off the beaten path and stuff that they seem to be around, you can kind of relax a little bit about that. And, and, of course, you guys are out in the woods a lot. You have a pretty good idea where you are, the roads that go in, the nearest, camp, nearest campgrounds or even people camping outside of the campgrounds. Um, the first thing I do when I get to a spot is I drive all the roads I can to see if anyone else is around. And then I, I, I hear on usually the only road in, you know, just to make sure that that sort of thing isn't happening. Um, but as far as the show being detrimental, I had some concerns at first that perhaps it was a little weird and disrespectful. Um, later on, I had uh, concerns that maybe the Sasquatches were going to be more difficult for people like us to encounter because they're going to catch, they're going to catch on to their, our, our tricks. And um, I still think that Sasquatches, um, that they they're, they're no dummies. You know, I, I've been in the areas that we've blown out. They just don't respond anymore. So the Bigfoot's catching on to our tricks is going to be better for them in the long run. So good. I mean, too bad for us, <laughs> but good for them. Because well, you know, I, 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 mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy right. this, and I want them to be well. I want Sasquatches uh, to thrive, you know. Um, I, I don't mind bothering them a bit and, you know, knocking on their door and screaming in their ear a bit because I enjoy that sort of stuff, and I think it's cool when they do that back. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in this for them at this point now, you know, uh, and me because I just love spending time in the woods. You know, I just got back from two nights in the woods. Like, I was out until about two hours ago. Um, nothing really happened or whatever, but I was out with Guy Edwards and Craig Flippy and just going out and, you know, beating on trees and hanging out and stuff for a little while. It's just good for the soul to get out, you know, and I think that's the point. And if nothing else, our show has gotten a lot of people and probably largely kids off the couch, got that Xbox controller out of their hand and got things and bodies out into the woods. And that itself is a good thing. And I agree because uh, this weekend, uh, my significant other, Susan, and her son, Jake, went with us as uh, Shane had his young daughter and his wife with him this weekend. And uh, to me, finding Bigfoot is kind of this generation's in search of, you know, Specifically, it is. It is. So, yeah. So, yeah, it totally is. And and that responsibility is not lost upon me. In fact, it's a heavy, heavy weight. Um, It's one of the things that uh, I wear around my neck that constantly reminds me that um, the show has to be of good quality, you know, and it has to be uh, real. Um, And we're not going to lie about stuff. We're going to do the best we can to show you what it's really like, you know, and and that whole comparison to the in search of thing, because it's it's because of in search of and those shows that I'm, I'm doing this today, you know, so there's there's another Cliff Berkman out there somewhere watching the show right now. I don't know who he is or who she is, but um, he or she is out there watching the show and, and loving it every single week. And another 30 or 40 years, they could be a primatologist. They could be one of the first primatologists to study Sasquatches specifically. I mean, who knows what influence any of us have, but um, I do know that I'm influencing an entire new generation. Not me, of course, alone, but the show is, uh, is influencing an entire new generation of Bigfooters and people who love Bigfoot. And again, that's why I'm doing this. I want people to love Bigfoot. 
Well, for me too, I think one of the other services that Finding Bigfoot has actually provided to the community, um, people at large and witnesses, is allowed them to have to come forward and talk to share their encounters where um, prior to that, because it's brought uh, the subject into the consciousness of the public. You know, one of the the things, when I talk to witnesses that have never told anybody their stories before, they, you know, one of the initial things, well, I didn't know, who do you tell when you have this experience? And um, I I think that one of the services that Finding Bigfoot has provided is allowed it witnesses to feel comfortable talking about their encounters. Yeah, I hear that everywhere I go all throughout the country, is that people uh, thought that they were alone or they, they heard about Bigfoot, but they weren't willing to share until they saw other people standing up on our show and, and sharing their experience, uh, their experiences, right? Um, that is definitely something, kind of an unforeseen service that I guess the show has uh, resulted in, because I didn't really see that one coming, but ob- I should have. I mean, looking back, it's obvious. Um, but, but that just wasn't on my radar, you know. Uh, but yeah, we hear that again. Like they would have never shared anything if it wasn't for the show, because who do you tell? You know, I mean, because mm-hmm. you, you go online and you look up anybody, you look up any of the Bigfoot groups, you don't know if they're weirdos or if they're dangerous people who are going to hound you, or you don't know what they're going to. Because going out blindly like that is kind of tough. But at least on finding Bigfoot, you know, if they're watching the show. They basically invite the four of us into their living room every week, you know, every Sunday night. It's a family affair. They hang out with the kids or whatever, the family, the wife, the the cat, the dog, whoever, and watch the show. So they kind of have a relationship with us in a way. So if that lowers somebody's, you know, like like, like, uh, that lowers their firewall a bit and they feel a little bit more willing to share it with us because they kind of know how we're going to react because they kind of know us a little bit as individuals. It's a lot easier, I think, for someone to share a story like that with us than it would be to share it with some anonymous person on the other end of a phone line. You know, that's a little scary in some ways. And even mm-hmm. even if not, even if it's not us, and they do want to share it with another group or something like that, Olympic Project, BFRO, whoever, you know, um, at least they know they're not alone. There's thousands of people who are seeing these things. Thousands of them. Um, people say, well, how come Bigfoot's are real? How come people don't see them more? So, well, how, how come you're not aware of how many people see them is a better question. A lot of people see these things all the time, man, and it's so good for them to know that they're not alone. They're not crazy. They're not anything – all that actually ex- exceptional. They just got lucky. You know, it's, it's just like seeing a bear but a lot cooler and a lot more rare. So I don't know. That's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah, you kind of – you ever feel yourself – uh, taking the place of a psychiatrist or somebody, at least a shoulder to lean on? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny that, we, like, once you you speak to a witness and then, like, especially the kind that, like, man, I, this has been weighing on me heavily for 30 years or, you know, one of those witnesses, um, it, it's kind of strange in a way because as soon as you make that connection with them, you know, uh, you're kind of like friends. Like, you're you're an important confidant to them for the rest of their lives. Like when they see Bigfoot stuff or when they, they have something weird happen in their backyard or something, um, you know, if they live in the right habitat, they'll let you know. They'll call you back or email you back and say, hey, this is me. I spoke to you six years ago. I, you probably don't remember, but blah, 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 and tell me about another report, you know. Um, and you guys are Bigfoot researchers. You talk to witnesses. I mean, you know that a special bond exists between the researcher and the witness. Um, maybe not always, but as far as I'm concerned, because I understand that these people are sticking their neck out. These, uh, a lot of these people are um, pretty concerned about what happened to them, and it's kind of shook their cage really well. 
um, a special bond is there. And that's also why uh, that I, I don't I don't publish sighting reports. You know, I have hundreds of them on my website, um, but they're all they're all backstage. They're all stuff that I read. I don't publish them for anybody else. Um, and even if I do publish them in some weird situation, like a blog post or something like that, I, I keep all witnesses 100% anonymous. Even if they want to be known, I keep it anonymous um, be, out of respect for the witnesses that I speak to and also just, you know, to cut down on people trying to get attention and all that sort of stuff, too. So, I mean, the focus yeah, should be yeah. on Bigfoot, not the witnesses. But, but, but when witnesses come to me, um, their privacy, their anonymity, and my respect for the witnesses is tantamount. I mean, it, it was not, it's, it, it, it's very, very important to me, very important to me, and um, because of that relationship that you have when somebody trusts you enough to give you a report and to share something kind of scary that happened to them, you know, I want to reciprocate with some respect. And that's, that's a great approach because I have people that have one of the concerns that I've had with witnesses that I've brought up is like, you know, all right, who's, who are you going to share this report with? And, and to me, the experience always belongs to the witness, you know, that I'm, I always am uh, honored that they, they felt comfortable sharing their, encounter um, i'm just a conduit you know it's like you, you, i'm glad that i'm here that you're able to share your experience and and it's always cool for me I, one of my favorite things is talking to people that have had encounters um, it, that that's uh, one of the very cool things about about uh, being involved in bigfoot research and the and having you know uh people know that you are are into it um opens the door for i, I don't know how many people have approached me uh, just because they know that I, I, I make no secret about the fact that, that I, I like to go look for Bigfoot. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially up here in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I, I've started <laughs> referring to Sasquatches as pretty much the, the, the I guess, the best-kept secret of the Pacific Northwest. It's because, you know, nobody's telling anybody about what they saw that one day. But sure enough, you talk to five or six people and somebody in there has probably seen one up here. Or at least their, their uncle did or their dad did or, you know, their mom saw one on the way to work or wh- whatever. Um, you talk to just a few people out here in Portland or Seattle or anywhere in between. And sure enough, you're going to run across witnesses and you're going to run across stories. But no one's talking about it unless you go, you know, pry it out of them by saying, yeah, Bigfoot's real. I know about that, you know, and then, say, oh. Have you seen something? You know, and pretty soon they'll <laughs> tell you. Sasquatches are the Pacific Northwest. Actually, it's North America. It's not even the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you go to Bigfoot country anywhere, you know, Trimble County, Kentucky or something. Any, Whitehall, New York, anywhere like that. You know, it's like the best kept secret in the neighborhood. No one's talking about it because everyone's kind of embarrassed they saw one. But you talk about it for very long and you're going to find somebody. So that kind of makes uh, Bigfoot the Kevin Bacon of uh, cryptozoology. Oh, yeah. I totally think there's a, you know, uh, five degrees to <laughs> Sasquatch or probably even three. <laughs> yeah, it depends where you are. In Portland, I'm asking people yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm asking people all the time in Portland, and about one out of five say yes on average. But other places, you know, like Lake Quinault, it's it's 100% of the people, like, know somebody who say they saw one or saw one themselves, you know. Um, so it's like one to five degrees of Bigfoot. I think that's I think that's a game for Hopsquatch. We should be playing five degrees of a. Yeah. Of course, you can't. That's you can't do it in that room because it's you know you can't. Uh, you're gonna. Everybody's either knows somebody or or has had an encounter themselves. So. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I can't do that amongst my friends either. So <laughs> very few. It's harder to find a friend of mine who isn't into the Sasquatch thing, you know. <laughs> so one uh, a while back, you and and Craig Flippy put out a, a DVD, uh, Bigfoot Road Trip. Hilarious. Um, it showed it was it was fun to see that side of you and and uh, your sense of humor and the, the Bigfoot puppets. If, if you if, but it but besides being uh, having a lot of humor and it also had a lot of good um, content, Bigfoot content. Is there, and if you haven't, by the way, uh, if any audience, anybody listening has not watched Cliff's Bigfoot Road Trip DVD, um, I highly suggest that you go get it and watch it tonight. Um, is there, uh, I've heard rumors, and I'm hopefully waiting for Bigfoot Road Trip 2. Is there yeah. Is there such a thing in the plan? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there is, there is. It's been stalled and delayed, though, by the, for the most part. I would say it's about 75% filmed. I already know the segments that are going to be in it. So it the, the, the complications tend to be um, my time on the road, because I spend about mm-hmm. seven or eight months a year on the road. And, um, you know, after I get – like I, this past season, the one that's being shot now, I started filming that in uh, first half of November. And I basically finished like the first week of March, I believe. Um, maybe the maybe the last couple of days of February, but I think it was the first week of March. You know, so I just got home at home about five six weeks, and a lot of other things have been eating away at my time because um, you know life goes on, whether you're trying to edit together Bigfoot Road Trip two or not. So my biggest thing right now is time. I've I've had a, a distinct lack of time combined with a distinct lack of motivation once I get off the road to get anything done. <laughs> um, obviously, the first three or four weeks, I, I don't really want to do much anything. I mean, last this past weekend is the first time I even spent the night in the woods since I was home. Um, you know, I've been out in the woods a few times and talked to witnesses and all this other stuff. But uh, So I'm just now starting to feel the groove again, you know, like get, get back in the groove a bit. So um, that's part of it. And also Craig Flippy has uh, taken up another project. He's filming his own documentary not necessarily about sasquatches although bigfoot plays a role in it Um, more of a journey of self-discovery combined with mopedding and uh, a moped trip (laughs) combined with ninja skills and bigfoot and weirdos of all sorts and flavors um his his Uh, thing is called crappy little dreams kind of following his own uh path in life so he's kind of taken uh more time to do that as well he should um so between our two distracted personalities, um, it's been kind of wow. slow going on the editing front for Bigfoot Road Trip 2. However, we do have some great segments filmed, and it will come out eventually, I guarantee it, because I'm sitting on all this amazing stuff. Uh, Craig and I go to um, Ape Canyon to look for the cabin and then fail mm. to find the cabin, uh, spoiler alert, but then we find out, we find the guy <laughs> who did. And so we go back and uh, have a little bit of home footage from that, the actual cabin site. I think that will probably be the first time any of that's ever been shown anywhere. Um, I do a very long uh, interview and cut it down to about four, uh, 20 minutes with John Crew, son of Jerry mm. Crew. And, of course, all Bigfooters should know – all Bigfooters should have a photograph of Jerry Crew in their house. Uh, Jerry <laughs> Crew is a guy in 1958 who, uh, who cast the first known Bigfoot footprint that made it to the newspaper to have pictures taken of it that went out, out on the AP wire that gave the word Bigfoot to the English language. You know, before that, um, 
word Sasquatch was known from Canada from the 1920s by a guy named J.W. Burns from the Stahelas, um people, uh, um, Native American, well, they're First Nation people because they're Canadian. Um, they're a reserve. That's what they call reservations up in Canada. Um, but Jerry Cruz, the guy who named Bigfoot, uh, which is also a huge misconception. People think it was the guy who wrote the article. Um, Joe something, I believe, uh, an Italian name. I can't remember his last name. But anyway, it starts with a G if I remember right. But if you look at that guy, he gets credit for naming Bigfoot. But he did not. Um, Jerry Crew did with his road building crew. And, um, but I, I interviewed John Crew because uh, his importance is, number one, he still has the original 1958 cast. And um, I had been looking for the cast for 15 years probably. Um, Dr. Meldrum had no idea where the cast was. He and I were both working in cahoots trying to find this thing. Um, and sure enough, it surfaced. Um, and it turns out it was miles from where I live. So um, I cornered John and uh, had him show me the cast. And I talked to him about his experiences because when he was seven years old, his dad brought him down to the road building site and showed him those footprints in the ground before they cast them. Now, that's huge. That's that is a, an eyewitness to history right there. Like he, they went down on a Saturday when John was off of school. And, um, and also in this interview, John talks a great deal about how his father, Jerry, was trying to find another Bigfoot. He would do things like he would grade the road that they were building back 600 yards and then park the, the, the grading equipment across the road so no one could get on without him knowing and then look for footprints first thing in the morning. He would set up tripwire cameras out in the woods. He was out there trying to see that animal, trying to find that Bigfoot. He brought his pastor out. He brought friends out. They smelled it, so they found weird nests out in the woods. They found more footprints. Uh, they never did see the thing. But So I've got that interview as well, um, kind of Jerry Crew, the first real Bigfooter. Uh, and he had to be the first Bigfooter, even though other people were looking for Bigfoot before that. It's because he's the guy who made up the word Bigfoot. So he, he wins, you know. Um, <laughs> let's see, we have another. Gosh, what what else did I do on there? Oh, Bobcat Goldthwait makes an, uh, a surprise appearance in one of my things there, um, one of my little segments. So he's been a good sport about that with me. Um, gosh, what else? I don't know. I've got a couple other interesting things on there too. Please forgive me if I don't remember. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been so focused well, on the Jerry Cruz like segment that uh, I don't want to in my head. I, I still I'm remember sorry, say again, the please? first time I ever no the first time I ever say I saw Craig Flippy was when he did the video of him riding his moped up from California, and that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and this is like the ten year anniversary of it, which is why he's making that, <laughs> that feature film based on that. Yeah, that was ten years ago, so it's kind of a, a look back on that trip, and then looking at where he is now, how his life has changed all throughout trying to live his crappy little dreams. <laughs> Cliff is a very, like, yeah, low-key guy if you meet him. I mean, if you, he, I remember when I, I got a copy of Bigfoot uh, Road Trip, and I had you sign it, Cliff, and then I had Craig sign it. He's like, well, uh, you're, you know, you're, uh, you're just as big a part of it as Cliff is. So, <laughs> but he's a very kind of laid-back guy, so... But a hell of a sense of humor. He's yeah, he's kind of got the fell. reputation as a weirdo and a freak, of course. Uh, yeah. And all, all people go up to him, you know, because Bigfoot Road Trip it isn't like a one big story arch. You know, it's a bunch of little segments, basically, little mm-hmm. vignettes that are connected 
by these two puppets watching television and changing the channel <laughs> between them. Um, it kind of has a, what is a mystery science theater 2000 or whatever that show was. It kind of has that feel to it where the, the Bigfoot, yeah, the Bigfoot puppets in between the segments either make, you know, make fun of the segment that just happened and then change the channel, you know, so it was kind of yeah. cute in that way. Um, but when people saw it, they said, oh, no, this is really demeaning to research. I said, well, no, you just take yourself too seriously, honestly. And they'd go to Craig and say, how can we put those puppets in there? I thought that was either great or stupid or whatever they think. You know, it doesn't matter what they think. <laughs> and then Craig would go, that wasn't me. That was Cliff. Yeah. Cliff did all that. <laughs> um, yeah. And then they go, what? I thought Cliff was a serious, you know, whatever. And like, yeah, I am serious about it. But why can't you have fun while you're being serious, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny that people like, get so uptight about. I mean, it's you go online, and I, you know, I, I've left many Bigfoot groups. I just got tired of the, the bickering. It's uh, when it comes down to it, it's it's Bigfooting. You know, it, it's not uh, people are not living and dying based on on uh, Bigfoot research. So for people to get so uptight yeah. about it is kind of ridiculous. So Cliff, one of your yeah, yeah you, you, you can smile and go, go ahead. Yeah, you can do both. You can have no, fun no, and big, but yeah, but it is true. Yeah, you can't have, actually have kind fun of why I do it. Yeah. Um, right. right. <laughs> what's going on with the, the with the Orang Pendek project? Any any new news there? Oh, maybe give, give our listeners a little bit of background on it. Okay. Yeah, a little background first. Um, when I was in Sumatra for the show for Finding Bigfoot, we went there looking for evidence of the Orang Pendek. Um, and I was lucky enough to be, to be the guy, uh, to have to go camping on that expedition. So, um, you know, uh, we're in Sumatra, we're in Indonesia, you know, which is Sumatra is an island in Indonesia. Um, they aren't going to let me go camping alone in a tiger preserve, right? They're just not going to let me, so, uh, that, that's the network decision and, you know, insurance reasons and all that other stuff. So we had a small group of guys that would go out with us. I think there are about four other guys and porters basically, which is good because, um, you know, it, it was about a six-mile hike in there, um, all uphill. Apparently, switchbacks are an American invention or at least a North American thing because in Indonesia, there's no switchbacks at all. It just goes straight up the hill, um, and it was a big steep hill and stuff. And it was a very, very tiring, grueling hike in 85-degree weather and 150% humidity, if such a thing exists. So it sure felt like that, at least. Um, and so I was up there for about four nights, if I remember right. And um and I, I spoke to those guys, and it turns out that one of the guys, Jonisa was his name, um, was the son of a tracker who had been employed by Adam Davies in the past. And, of course, Adam Davies uh, um, uh, had been looking for the Orang Pendek before in Sumatra. Um, so, it, And it was on one of his expeditions, I think, in 2000 or two, 99 to 2001, somewhere in there. I don't remember where. They, they pulled what was, at that point, to my knowledge, the first Orang Pendek footprint cast out of the ground. And um, Jonice's dad was on that trip, uh, an excellent tracker. And then when I started talking to witnesses in Sumatra, I kept hearing again and again that the witnesses had seen these things within the last six months. And that's not even true of Sasquatch reports for the most part. And a lot of times you're talking to somebody who saw one a year or two ago, but um, the, all, most of our witnesses had seen them like in the last six months. And so I started kind of, and then Dally, who was another guy that um, we employed there, um, I, Dally has a really great command of English. He has technology because most, a lot of the people we were dealing with in Indonesia and in Sumatra were illiterate, you know, in any language. They didn't speak English, and they were, and so Dali was translating for us and stuff. So I kind of kept some contacts when I left because it occurred to me that I mean these people are, 
you know, farming chilies and, and cinnamon and stuff like that for a living. That's what they do over there. Um, they cut down national forests and then they put a farm in there, which is, sounds crazy to us, but that's what they do. Um, in fact, they even a number, about 10 years before we were there, I believe, they set up a ranger district like headquarters in this area of Karinchi Sablat National Forest or uh, uh, um, National Park, rather, um, to stop the people from farming it and cutting down the rainforest and farming it. And um, after it opened and people realized what was going on, they all got together and they burnt the ranger station down and ran the rangers out of town. Um, so they're still deforesting it, unfortunately, and stuff. So anyway, these people are living in this Karinchi Sablat National Park area, and um, they're farming for a living, subsistence farming, right? So I said, hey, you know what, you guys, uh, you, you were fantastic guides for us. Um, your ear is to the ground. You live here. If you hear about one of your neighboring farmer guys out here running across an orang pendek, like having seen one, and it comes across your table, you know, um, I, I, I'll pay you for your time off your, off your field. Go there. Check it out. See if you can find footprints. If you can, cast them and send them to me, you know. And that started like three years ago or four years ago now or something like that. I, don't, I forget what – I have to go back and check the date, but 2013, I believe, anyway. So three years ago. Um, and, since, and, and it's been going on ever since. It turns out that my hunch of empowering the locals was bought on because when I started this project, there were maybe three footprint casts that I'm aware of. Um, Adam got one with his partners there, and it wasn't just his endeavor. He had he had cohorts in crime there, and that, um, one of those guys got another interesting print that could be a print, could be something else we don't really know. And then uh, Debbie Martyr um, got one, I believe, back in the '90s or the early 2000s or something like that. Um, I've I've only seen one photograph of that print in uh, in a book by a guy named Gregory Fourth uh, called Images of the Southeast Asian Wild Man. Um, But so there are three prints in the world before I started this project. And now three or four years later, I'm up to about 60. So uh, I've been very, very fortunate to kind of get in at the ground level of this thing. And even though I I don't live in Sumatra, um, I can still do work there through the people that I met there and have relationships with. Um, and it still goes on to this day. There have been three hits since, since 2016 started. People see these things a lot. Um, and the, the, the footprint casts seem to be legitimate. Um, I, I could be the, the silly American is getting duped, um, but I don't think so for a number of reasons. Number one is that for these people that I'm employing out there, um, they, uh, it's like a family pride thing for them because Jonice's dad was the the be- renowned for being the best hunter in the Carinchi area or the best tracker in the Carinchi area. Um, these people are honest, good folks. So uh, number one, I trust them as individuals. You know, I don't think that they'd be lying to me. Uh, number two, um, a couple of the folks in the project, a couple of their helpers and stuff, had a falling out at one point over some money situation, as as often happens in situations like this. And neither one of them has said the other guy sent you a bunch of fake prints. Neither one. Um, and in fact, um, prints that I've gotten from both sides of that argument since then are all uh, – um, they're, they're all similar um, – uh, like anatomically similar. So, and they seem to show variation in toe position and depth and splay and all the stuff that I look for in real casts. Um, and most surprising to me and most bewildering to me is I started this looking for a ring pendek footprint cast to learn a little bit more about the creatures because any tracker will tell you 
if you follow a track track line, um, it tells a story of what the animal was doing and thinking at the time, you know, going for food, going for water, how it approached an area, how it left an area, the whole thing. We found out, I found out a lot of stuff about a ring pendex since then. But um, one of my guys started exploring areas in other parts of Sumatra. And um, it wasn't too long before footprint tracks of an entirely different thing started showing up. Uh, something called the Orangadang, or also known as the Orangugu, G-U-G-U, na- named after the sound this thing makes. And uh, like goo 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 like that sort of thing. So they call this thing the Orangugu or the Orangadang. Uh, the word Orang, by the way, means man. In, in the local language, which is why uh, orangutans are called that. Utan is uh, forest. So orangutan, orangutan means um, man of the forest. So, so now the orang pendek project has turned up an entirely new species, basically, um, that has been rumored. You can find books on it. You can find brief mentions of them in, in the small amount of literature that's been published on the orang pendek. Um, about another larger critter that lives in another part of the island. See, orangpendex are usually about three or four feet tall, it seems. Orangadangs, or orangugus, um, tend to be about five, five and a half feet tall. So they're a little bit bigger variety of them. And their feet are similar but different. And the cool thing about it, when I first started getting these things, I was thinking, oh my gosh, what is this? Is this some sort of weird, you know, is, what, what kind of footprint is this? Like, what else lives there that I could be mistaken for these things? Even though the witnesses are saying they saw them and these footprints are found afterwards, it's like, okay, what else could be going on here? And I started looking around, and um, if you catch on the news a couple years ago in uh, Malaysia, um, was it Johor? I don't remember exactly. I think it was Johor. Um, they, they were finding uh, strange footprints that didn't match anything. They said it was a Bigfoot of Malaysia. Um, well, these footprints match those footprints. And Malaysia is just across just across the water to the north of Sumatra. So we could have that thing living down in the Sumatra as well, just like a wider, you know, because, you know, orangutans are on Sumatra and they're also in Borneo and that's separated by water. So why couldn't these things, a terrestrial version of them, the same thing as the orangutans just spread, you know, when the, the water level is lower and stuff like that. Um, and also, interestingly enough, um, the Josh Gates from Destination Truth um, he collected a cast one time that seems to be legitimate. Um, a, a Sherpa actually found it. Um, he, it was a Yeti cast, but a Sherpa found it. Josh didn't find it, but a Sherpa found it. And, and then they, I think Josh might have cast it or you know, the Sherpa cast. It doesn't matter who got, collected it, though, um, from the Himalayas. And that print shows a remarkable similarity to these things, too, the Rangugus. So um, that's a very long-winded explanation of what's been going on lately with the Orang Pendek project. Uh, like I've got a, a whole bunch of Orang Pendek stuff, and now I have a small number, perhaps a half dozen or so, um, prints of something new that I'm still just barely beginning to explore because it isn't really present in the literature. you know. Um, and very few people go looking for anything like that, and almost nobody talks about it. This is new. This is new and ground – I mean, Orang Pendek project was groundbreaking in my view. I'm super excited about it. Um, but coming across this other critter out there, it's just blowing my mind. Yeah. Rather exciting, Cliff, I mean, with the Orion Pendic. I mean, you, you talked about some similarities, but have you found more similarities with the uh, track impressions, these castings, uh, maybe possibly uh, coming from the same individual? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Particularly the, uh, when, you, when you map out where they are, like the villages aren't that far apart for the most part. 
Um, and they're all within, most of them are within the Karinchi Sablat National Park. Um, so it's very possible that I have, well, it's certain that I have cats of the same individual because it can't be very common. Otherwise we'd know about them, I think. So they must be very rare. Um, and they seem to come down in the farms and raid the sugar cane and they eat corn and stuff like that. They, they steal from the farmers, you know, just like Sasquatches do in North America. And also just like uh, orangutans do in Borneo and Sumatra, they come down and they stay in the trees, of course. Um, and of course, people out there listening might be thinking, well, how do you know these aren't orangutan footprints? The feet are nothing alike. Well, they're, they're, they're alike in that they have a divergent hallux, like their, their big toe sticks out to the side like your thumb does on your hand. But beyond that, they're nothing alike. Um, orangutans have very long toes that are kind of curled and stuff like that. And, and these things have short, stubby toes, as would be expected from a um, habitual biped. Um, their hallux is off to the side. Their big toes off to the side, um, which is not really expected from a biped. But when you go back to the stories of the orang pendek and eyewitness encounters, even back hundreds of years, these things are often seen in trees. There's a very famous report back from uh, a very historical report um, where this thing goes up in a tree and out on the limb, it's like walking bipedally out on a limb. Well, okay, well, if, if that's the case and these things are habitually both on the ground and in trees, well, then we should expect to see that divergent hallux. And sure enough, we do. So we have short stubby toes that would, that would help in the push-off stage of the walking gait. And then we have the, uh, the walking phase, at least. And then we have the, um, the, the, the divergent hallux to help it grasp the trees and whatnot. Um, it, seems to be, um, it seems to line up with their observed behavior rather well. Um, and the footprints are agreeing with each other. And the, one of the great things about this is that uh, at first the guys were like, they would just take pictures of the prints in the ground. I said, no, no, cast them, cast them, send them to me. And then they'd cast one. And it was the same mistake that Bigfooters were making back in the, in the 60s. You know, They would find a print, and they would find the best, cleanest-looking one, and they'd cast it, and that's it. And that's how we get a lot of those footprints. You know, That's why Roger and Bob only pulled one from the Patterson-Gimlin site. Um, but it took somebody like Bob Titmus, who goes back and casts 10 in a row, because those 10 footprints are going to have a lot more information than just two. And if you cast 10 footprints in a row or even five footprints in a row, you're going to be able to see the differentiation between each print. And so that's what I had my, my Sumatran contacts do. Um, and I, I have one line of tracks that I have five or six from the same individual in a row. And that, that's by far the most um, informative pr uh, track line I have so far. But now they try to, tr I told them, I don't care if they're messy, cast them. I don't care, just cast them. So they basically cast them now until they run out of plaster. And, and now, mind you, these guys are hiking six, eight miles back into the jungle to these, these places. So I don't ask them to carry, you know, 50 pounds of plaster with them. Um, so I'm usually getting like three or four, maybe five casts at a time from each individual find now, which is really nice. Um, so, and again, when you look at the, the differentiation and, the, uh, and, and when you look at the footprints themselves, the context tells the story, but also the depth of certain parts of the foot tell an anatomical story in the foot. It turns out that these things seem to have uh, flexibility in the mid part of the foot. Lo and behold, just like every other ape species except for humans, you know, we're the only ones that have retained a flexible – Or I mean, we've only – humans are the only apes um, hominoid that has, re, that has lost the flexibility in their foot. Um, ours is held static by ligaments and tendons and what appears to be your longitudinal arch, um, the arch that goes from the front to the back of your foot. Um, and we have that because our ancestors were hunters, uh, persistence hunters, which means they chased prey. 
we're long distance runners basically habitually. Um, <clears throat> but orang pendeks aren't. They're uh, semi arboreal, ground dwelling, walking things, you know. So they would have retained flexibility in the mid part of their foot, just like you have flexibility in the mid part of your hand in order to uh, um, grab the trees better as they go up and down them and out on limbs and stuff. So, and then the the tracks tell a story, whether it's behavioral or anatomical. Um, the tracks have a story, and I've learned a tremendous amount about the ring pendex from this project. Yeah, truly fascinating and and very exciting because here's another. Um, know, uh, uh, mystery out there uh, in a different part of the world other than North America that could exist. Uh, Cliff, uh, other than the the castings, the impressions, and some of the um, stories shared with you, encounters, is there any other pieces of evidence or anything that the Ren Pendic is thought to to do that, uh, you, that have been shared with you or have you come across? Well, the uh, the information coming out of Sumatra is scant even now. You know, I, I've I've you know extended that book of knowledge a little bit. I, I think quite far actually compared to what it was even ten years ago. Um, but still, the the knowledge coming out of Sumatra is fairly small. But I I have this idea now that um, uh, looking at Sasquatch-like creatures or hairy hominoids, I should say, because ring pendex aren't exactly Sasquatch-like. Um, looking at hairy hominoids that are bipedal and all that stuff, looking from all over the world, um, I'm, I'm starting to be able to hypothesize possible groupings at this point. Like I, I do think that Sasquatches are, are rather not not common, but they, they're there they're are a lot of places, you know. Um, obviously, North America. I think I'm, I'm confident they're in South America now. That I've been to Brazil and talked to witnesses down there. Um, they call them the Mapinguari in um, Brazil. Although some people think that's a sloth, and I'm not saying that there is not a cryptid sloth out there. But certainly, some of the witnesses we spoke to did not see a sloth. They saw a Sasquatch. Um, so they're in North and South America. I think they're historically in Europe. I have spoken face to face with one individual that saw one in Germany in the Black Forest. And I have emails from several other former military guys stationed in the Czech Republic that have seen them there. So they're in Europe as well. Um, they're certainly in Asia. Um, and Are they in Africa? I don't know, because almost no information comes out of Africa. It's hard to say what's down there. Um, but now, if you look at the Orang Pendek, are they an isolated population that's only on Sumatra? I doubt that. And when I start looking elsewhere... Um, looking for uh, hairy hominoids that have been described like the orang pendek, the, the most solid lead I have is one biologist who I was communicating with for a while. Um, that uh, his specialty is peafowl, like you know peacocks and stuff like that. And he was um, in Cambodia, <clears throat> excuse me, on the border of Laos um, for about a week or two doing a study on his birds, right? And um, there was this one valley that his guides say, no, we don't go down there because weird stuff happens. It's weird down there. You don't want to go there, right? And so he didn't go. But over the period of that week, on several occasions, he had extended observations of ground-dwelling, uh, well, mostly ground-dwelling orangutan-like creatures that at the time he just wrote off as orangutans that were especially adept at walking on the ground. He said that they were very comfortable. They would run, they would walk. And orangutans, if you've seen them walk on the ground, they're not exactly comfortable running around on two legs. You know, they're, they're quadrupeds or habitual quadrupeds. But these things were zipping around, running on two legs, 
but they had real long arms and then they'd zip up a tree and walk around in the tree and, and like up and down logs and stuff. They'd go up and down bipedally or quadrupedally. He, he had ex- several extended observations of these things and they were about three or four feet tall. And I'm thinking, oh, that to me sounds like an orang pendek. Um, and he saw them on a number of occasions and he's a competent observer, an excellent witness. I see no reason to doubt him whatsoever. And, you know, uh, the, Southeast Asia is not far from Sumatra. And it seems to me that if these things are in Sumatra, they're likely somewhere else as well. And they, could that even be the explanation for the smallest of the three Yetis that are reported? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, and now this new thing, this orangadang thing, you know, maybe that's even like a subspecies of the orang pendek or vice versa. Um, what's more common, I guess? Because uh, their foot strongly resembles that uh, Yeti print. Um, it makes me kind of wonder about that, you know? And of course, when you look at the discovery of Homo floresiensis, the hobbit species on the nearby island of Flores, which is also in Indonesia, um, I initially thought orang pendex were probably just those things that were still alive. Um, but based on the foot morphology, it's clear that those, that's not the case. Orang, uh, the Homo floresiensis, their big toe goes straight ahead like ours. It's adducted is the word for that. Um, so, there's another weird thing there, but it turns out on the island of Flores, as well as some of the surrounding islands, there's stories of little hairy man things about three or four feet tall that are much more human-like than orang pendeks are reported to be, like very much small human-like hairy things, whereas orang pendeks are, aren't generally thought of as human-like. The witnesses don't describe them as little people. They describe them as monkeys or apes. Um, they, you know, monkeys have tails, apes don't. So they'd be apes, but they describe them very much like siamangs or a gibbons um, that are bigger and stockier and running on two legs, basically. Whereas uh, these things on Flores, they called ibu go- they're called ibu gogo, ibu gogo. Um, all the local uh, native folk in the area, um, they, they have stories of these things. Um, the most recent stuff was about from 200 years before when they cornered some in a cave and burned them alive in there. Um, I think Homo floresiensis is alive and well and living on Flores and even further south. Because when you look at Australia, that has Bigfoot sort of reports called the Yowie, um, they also have this other thing that all the Aborigines guys say, these are not baby Yowies. They are different. They are full grown when they're about four feet tall. They call them brown jacks. Now, there's other local names for them as well, but brown jacks is the name that I was introduced um, to uh, when I was in Australia. Um, but I think that looking at one of the things I've learned and one of the suspicions I have based on the orang pendek project is that orang pendeks are alive and well in a couple areas of the world, just like every other weird, like unknown, so to speak, uh, hominoid species, pockets of them here and there that are not isolated things for the most part. So I think they spread widely being large terrestrial mammals because that's what large terrestrial mammals do. They, they 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 spread their 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 terrain, you know. Like they 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 travel, they travel great distances. So, yeah, one of the uh, one of the things that Gunnar and I were discussing the other uh, just the other uh, night was the fact that if if Oran Pendic was discovered or proven to exist, what would be the implications um, towards Sasquatch and its uh, discovery or at least. Uh, Recognition, you know, with with the scientific community, if if Iran Pendic was proven to exist, do you think that that would um, give uh, science a little more uh, credence to look into the Sasquatch subject a little more seriously? 
Not a lot at first. Um, I think that uh, the logical uh, train of events or chain of events in my mind um, would be if if somebody proved the orangutan deck is real, brings one in, a dead one or whatever, um, mm-hmm. then they'd probably go find other ones and stuff. Then they'd start looking at other areas in that part of the world that have stories like, you know, hairy hominoids. And it turns out that a lot of those Indonesian islands have, um, have wild men's stories, uh, hairy wild men's stories. And some of them are real small, like the Ibogogo or the Orang Pendek. And some of them are like three meters tall, like nine feet tall, like basically considering human uh, how humans don't estimate height and distances very well somewhere between nine and like seven and nine feet tall you know which is basically a sasquatch as far as i'm concerned because if there's sasquatch like creatures in southeast asia which there are and south and sasquatch like creatures in australia which there are well fill in the gap there's there are some in indonesia and in fact i know a witness who saw one on papua new guinea um, one of the most competent naturalists and observers I've ever run across in my entire life, a man named Gary Opit, who's a well-known cryptozoologist in um, Australia. He is an eyewitness to a Sasquatch, a seven-and-a-half-foot Sasquatch in Papua New Guinea. So there's a, a, a competent observer with a story that's not that old from the 1980s seeing one of these things. Um, so I think that if the Orang Pendek was proven to be real, I think one of the first things that would happen is that Anthropologists would dust off their books and um, and start looking into uh, the, the oral history of local tribes and people and ethnic groups in Indonesia and looking for other places in Indonesia that um, unknown apes might exist. And through mm-hmm. that, perhaps um, a Sasquatch-like critter, like a Bigfoot, basically a big one, um, could be discovered. And if one is discovered in another part of the world – then that would eventually lead them back to North America. But I think the level of arrogance and hubris right now in science, um, which is what basically stops most scientists from looking into the Bigfoot thing right now, is like, no, they couldn't possibly be real because we know about them by now. That's not going to change if a three-and-a-half, four-foot-tall ape in Indonesia is discovered. But perhaps something similar could be discovered in Indonesia, and then that would bring them back to North America. To interject there is... The fact that you're involved heavily uh, with the Oran Pendic and, and some of the, the, the casting specifically uh, and funding people to, to actually lo- you know, locate um, track impressions and, and evidence um, and having known that you are involved heavily in the, here in the, the uh, continental United States uh, with the subject of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, it may be a, a bridge possibly and and they'll look at this and go okay this is a positive endeavor uh that's proven something the rand pendic let's look what else let's look and see what else clip clip is doing and and uh maybe um there's truth to uh some of what your findings it's possible it's possible and i you know but again for the vast majority of scientists i'm just some crackpot on tv making a reality show um, I, I mean, that's the truth. I'm nobody special. I have a degree in music is what it comes down to. Like, I'm, I'm nobody special. I just collect cats like I collect baseball cards or something. I don't collect baseball cards, but you get the idea. Um, yeah. I, sure, I have some scientists, my, you know, ear. I mean, I, I've got, I'm lucky enough to have a direct line to a number of PhDs who are very interested in the Sasquatch thing. Um, and even some PhDs who are interested in the Ring Pendek thing. I've, I, I, you know, I'm very lucky in that way that they take me seriously. 
but most of science would, and I'd have to go through them to get stuff done anyway, which is fine. I don't mind that a bit. Um, but what I think the biggest takeaway of all from the Orang Pendek project is, at least for my mind, you know, the biggest takeaway of, of everything that I've learned is, is the strategy that I employed getting the Orang Pendek evidence is you empower the locals. That's by far the most powerful thing I can tell anybody listening to this podcast. If you want to get any evidence, um, you empower the people who live there. And whether it's in Sumatra or whether it's on the Kitsap Peninsula of Washington or the Olympic – like uh, up by Forks in the Olympic Peninsula or Southern California, people who say they're on the property or in Kentucky or Florida or wherever it happens to be, you talk to the people who live there and let them get the job done. You empower them. Because what, what generally happens, like say somebody um, over here in Mount Hood uh, up by Sandy or something like that has a Bigfoot that's been raiding their trash can for the last week, okay? They somehow get a hold of me. I get the message. You know, they, they email me with their report and stuff, and I, I'm interested enough to talk to them. I do that. I go out to the situation, right? If I go out to their property, the Bigfoot is going to notice, first of all. Um, people underestimate Sasquatches. They're going to notice. Um, and this has been shown, shown before. Dennis Foll, uh, a, a good friend of mine who lives in Colorado, excellent, excellent um, researcher. He was telling me about a long-term witness that he was working with, and stuff would happen every night and stuff. He'd show up, nothing. He'd go away. It would start happening again. And he, he eventually figured out, oh, it's my car. Of course. I mean, how stupid did I think these things were? Of course they're smarter than that. So he'd park a couple miles down the road, get picked up and brought back, and then stuff would continue happening. Once you enter the situation as a researcher, you change the situation. Bigfoot's catch on. It's something's out of the ordinary, and, and Bigfoot's are going are gonna, to you know, clam up and not give you anything, basically. But if you empower the local person who lives there or who goes to that spot or, or whatever the situation is, they have a much higher chance of walking away with tangible evidence than you ever will as a Bigfoot researcher. And that's why if you have somebody with a long-term witness situation, that's why you lend them trail cameras or you teach them how to make a footprint cast or something like that. They can get the job done better than you can because you have to, make, you have to drop, drop everything you're doing and get a day off of work to go out there. You know? um, but they're, they're already there. And if you yeah. empower the locals, you'll walk away with more at the end of the day than any other method I've ever known. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say on on the topic of of researchers, uh, Cliff. Uh, you know, there's a certain stigmata with the labeling of a Bigfoot researcher. You you often I've heard you say this time and time again. You're a learner. You're you're you know, enthusiast, a learner of the subject. Why is there? <clears throat> what is a, a Bigfoot? What what is a researcher to you? Uh, and is there such a thing? A uh, re- researcher to me is just kind of a word that people put on themselves or others. Um, you know, if you're interested in the Bigfoot thing and you're learning about them, you're pretty much researching. I mean, when I taught elementary school, I'd ask my students to research a topic. And they would go read about it and come back with a little you know, presentation or something, and they researched. Um, re- researchers sound so important, too, and what a cool thing to be, a Bigfoot researcher. So a lot of people like that label. You know, they put that label on themselves or others or their group or whatever, and that's cool. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the, the contrast I always say is between myself, a Bigfoot learner, um, or, is with the Bigfoot expert. 
you know, I'm often when I'm on a news program or interviewed for this or that or something um, or in an article, I'm often billed as a Bigfoot expert. And, you know, I, I guess com- I guess compared to the rest of the population, I kind of am because I know a lot of stuff about the history and I have a lot of experience. But expert implies a level of familiarity and knowledge that I don't think anybody can really profess. You know, anybody can really lay claim to um, because, you know, where do Bigfoot sleep, Cliff? You got me there. I've got some ideas I can share with you, but I don't know. You know, like, uh, what, what's their day like, Cliff? Like, well, if I can't even tell you what an average Bigfoot's day like, how can I call myself an expert? You know, but I, I've got some ideas based on the experiences I've had. I, I've, you know, uh, I've got some hypotheses. Um, they might, some might even qualify as theories. But um, really, at this point, we're, it's a lot of speculation and hypotheses. Um, so I, I don't like the word expert, even though that label is often put on me. Um, I don't think that highly of myself. So, but I, I'm just trying to learn about these things, like every everyone else is, and and I think that's what a, a learn. That's what a, that's really what a researcher is. A researcher is someone who's actively trying to learn about these things, you know. And so, there are, there are a good number of people out in the field today that qualify as a researcher in that way. And there's a lot of people that are just are just interested in the subject. You know, they're not necessarily trying to learn about them. They're just interested in the subject and what goes on. And that's cool too, because I want um, everybody to enjoy the Bigfoot thing in one way or another, even if you're just into those campy movies that are continually being made about, you know, homicidal Sasquatches. That's cool too. It doesn't matter to me. (laughs) I want everybody to love Bigfoot because it, it goes back to what I said earlier. The more people who love Bigfoot, the larger army they're going to have behind them, their rights, their land, you know, their food resources and protection after the eventual discovery really does happen. And that's great points. I got, I have one caller who wants to ask you a quick question, Cliff. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Hello, Cliff. Alyssa, My name is Alyssa. You are on you are on the air with Cliff. Go ahead. Hello, Cliff. Hello. Um, my question is what got you into the whole Bigfoot stuff? Oh, well I've always been kinda of weird, honestly. Like for as long as back I, as as I can remember, I was like the eccentric one in my family and in the class and stuff like that. Um but uh so I've always had an interest in the weird stuff growing up. In the 1970s, um, as we mentioned earlier, I would watch the TV shows like In Search Of and stuff, and I loved monsters, whether it's Godzilla, King Kong, or Bigfoot, because to me, you know, five, six years old, they're all the same thing. They're all, this, they're all just as real as the other one is. Um, much to my chagrin later in life, I learned that Godzilla wasn't real. It was just a movie thing, but that Bigfoot one never quite went away, you know? And then when I was in college, it was really reading in books that convinced me that Sasquatches were real. Um, I found a book with a bunch of uh, scholarly papers written about Sasquatches in my college library. And I started reading about it. And these people were very intelligent academics who were studying the subject. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I mean, not only are Bigfoots funny and quirky and cool monsters, but they might be real animals too. So I started looking into it since I was already camping and stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the short version of the story. I'm kind of a weird guy who likes weird things, but I'm also smart, and I like to read books. And um, I suppose it was the books that really made me realize these things are real. 
And then I started looking for them and I started finding some stuff and finding people. And here I am 20 something years later, still being weird. I can't wait to meet you at the Ohio Bigfoot conference in May. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I mean, the Ohio conference is ridiculous. So many people show up and it's so much fun meeting everybody and, um, so, uh, that's going to be a great time. I'm, I've actually started thinking about my presentation, which shame on me, by the way, I'm speaking at Hopsquatch in April and I haven't even started that presentation yet, but I'm already looking forward to, um, Ohio. So yeah, it's going to be great. So when you show up to Ohio, make sure you introduce yourself to me. Okay. I will. Cool. Hello? <laughs> Did I lose everybody? It's all quiet now. Uh, yeah, you know, I got to work on that mute button thing. So <laughs> thanks, Cliff, for, for uh, talking to Alyssa. She was excited to have an opportunity to say hi. So, Oh, no problem. No problem at all. I enjoy what, saying hi to all, all the fans and people out there. <laughs> and that's that's a question I, I like. I mean, it's you qualify as a Bigfoot celebrity as much as anybody that – that uh, is out there in in big footing. How is that? You know, you're a pretty pretty reserved, um, private guy in in your personal life. Uh, how is how do you uh, match that up with with being, you know, on a very popular TV show? Um, it, sometimes it's very difficult for me. Um, I mentioned a moment ago the Ohio conference, for example. Uh, it's it's ridiculously crowded, and there's people swarming everywhere. I think Mark told me two years ago when I spoke, like two or three thousand people came through the doors. And of course, not all those people have tickets to you know to go see, see the talks and stuff. But there's a vending area, and you know I'm milling around out there and stuff, so people can have a chance to meet me and stuff. It, it, sometimes it's just overwhelming because I mean you guys know me personally. You've both been to my home. You know that I'm. I'm you know, you guys are usually over for barbecues or something like that, a party situation. But in general, I spend a lot of my time alone with, you know, with my dog or something like that, you know, and that's it. I go camping alone a lot. Um, not always, but a lot. Um, I really like my alone time. And so to go to a public event, it's really, it really, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I love meeting people. And, and it's an honor that so many people are interested in, you know, meeting me and sharing their experiences. But it does tax me very heavily. And for some reason, I guess I'm not that smart or something because um, being a quiet introvert like I am, I've always had jobs that really an, ex an extrovert would be far better suited for, um, whether it's being on television like now or being an elementary school teacher um, or being a salesperson or w whatever else, uh, leading Bigfoot expeditions when I did that for Matt back in the day, you know, um, like those are all extrovert jobs, you know, you got to be out there interacting and meeting people and, and like loving like the talk and stuff. And I'm good at it. I, I think I'm actually very good at it. Um, all modesty aside, but it is taxing on me. So I like, I do have to make, take extra pains to um, achieve balance in my life, you know, because I am a public figure. Um, I got to make sure that I, I, I go the other way. The pendulum swings the other direction equally far. Um, so uh, that, that, that's always been a challenge for me, whether it's been for when I was an elementary school teacher or now that I'm on television. Um, I, I have to make sure that I have that cliff time. Otherwise, I start getting even weirder. 
But that's one of the things that my experiences with you, if you're, you're very gracious with your time and, and generous with, you know, and uh, it, it is, I think people get hung up on the fact that, oh yeah, you're on TV and it's a, you know, it's kind of a glamorous thing and you get to go travel. They don't see the, the amount of work and, and sacrifice actually the people that, that commit to doing these kinds of projects um, uh, put in. And um, I remember talking to uh, Matt Moneymaker at the, the last episode of the first season of Finding Bigfoot, and you guys were really not well compensated. Uh, those early days were not, you know, it was, it was a, an experiment. They were putting this show on. Uh, the conversation when talking to Matt, it was like, yeah, we got crappy equipment, and, and uh, they're making us do stuff we don't want to do, and, and we're not going to pay that much. I mean, it, it didn't start out like, like uh, five seasons ago. Did you, have, you had no idea that it would last this long. Um, did you ever imagine that you'd be making a living uh, Bigfooting? No, no. I think it's a surprise to all of us, really, that the show's been as successful as it has been. And uh, back first season, um, the, the, certainly the pay wasn't wasn't good enough to live on, um, even for my meager existence as an elementary school teacher. I, like it just wasn't that much. Um, uh, very, we're all very fortunate that it's gone on as long as it has, uh, and it's it's and things because of the success of the show, it gave us leverage to make the show better. Um, first season, there was some deceptive editing um, where they made it look like Matt and Bobo saw a Bigfoot, but they saw a horse instead. Um, the thing on the hill that Matt chases off, they circle Matt chasing it off instead of the thing itself, which I, I to this day, by the way, I still think is probably a Sasquatch. Um, but so there was some kind of editorial sleight of hand, you know, but whatever. I mean, as far as I was concerned, it's like, oh, they did that to us. So I just went on my blog, like when I saw the, the episode air, I just went on my blog and told the truth, um, which, of course, the production company wasn't super happy with. Um, but, we, but, that, but once the show was a success, once the, the numbers came in for that season and everybody was watching the show, that gave us leverage to say that we're not going to put up with those kinds of shenanigans anymore. Like you can't edit us like that you can't put fake sounds in instead of the real ones you can't make it seem like we saw a sasquatch if we know darn well we saw a horse you know and all that stuff and um and kudos to not only the production company um, but our showrunners, the people who were on the show the people at the network uh, keith hoffman the people at animal planet and all the way up the line to the ceo of discovery at the time all of those people were behind our idea like this idea is so compelling and the viewers are interested enough in it that we don't have to do that to have the show be a success. Um, there's a lot of shows out there that are billed as reality shows that could not be anything further from reality. They are scripted. They find fake stuff and they tout it as real. Um, they, every noise they hear in the woods is a big foot or a something, whatever they're looking for, you know, um, there's a lot of nonsense on television. And after all these years, even through the troubles that we still have nowadays, you know, because Bigfooting on TV is not exactly like real Bigfooting because there, you have to have cameras there. If you don't have cameras and lights, you don't have a TV show. And that's what we're getting paid to do after all. But after all this time, I can actually say I'm actually proud of finding Bigfoot. I wouldn't have said that at the beginning, but now I can say that. I'm actually proud of finding Bigfoot for bringing the most realistic 
most real, not even realistic, the most real big footing you possibly can to television. We really are out there doing things. We really are out there like hearing stuff. If we say we heard it, you can bet your bottom dollar that we heard something. If we say, I, I think that's a Sasquatch, you can guarantee, take it to the bank, that whoever said that thinks that's a Sasquatch. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not even saying I'm right all the time. But I'm saying that we are not asked to lie on the show. We are not asked to deceive. Um, it is a TV show. Do we need to take speed boats to get to the location? No, not really. Not all the time. Sometimes, but not now. Do we need to take you know fancy ATVs to get with it? No, not really. That's the TV part. And you, please forgive me for making television. It's my job. But when it comes to the Bigfoot thing, you know, witnesses, when we're out there on a night investigation, when we're doing the solo camping thing, all of that, 100% real. We do not and will not lie. And to their credit, the production, or the, the production company and the, the amazing group of people they send out with us never ask us to. Never ask us to. In interviews, they may say, okay, now that sound that you heard that you think is, that, that, that's probably a Bigfoot or whatever. And, and I might say, well, I'm not so sure it's a Bigfoot. And they say, okay, Cliff, word it however you want. Because what, what the producers are looking for, the producers are editing in their mind. Like as they're filming the show, they're taking notes, and they're, they're thinking in their mind how this scene connects with this scene and how what the order is going to be because the story editor goes home at the end of the day, goes home, goes to the hotel at the end of the day, and, and strings out that uh, – and like writes up a, a brief outline of a way that that scene could go based on the, the shots that we got. Um, and so the, the producers are always thinking. And so when they interview us, they ask us those things that could connect the scenes. You know what I mean? Um, TV is a very, very interesting media to work in because there's so many aspects to it that I would have never thought of if I wasn't working in it. Um, little things, too, like there's got to be a beginning, middle, and end to every scene, which is why we always do a drive-up shot. You know, you can see us getting out of the car at a witness's place, you know, 90% of the, of the time. You can see us driving up to town hall 90% of the time. We never think about it because we're viewers of television, and psychologically, that's what we're looking for. And when it's given to us, we don't even notice. But if it's not there, that's when people notice. And so that's what the producers are doing. They're making television based on the experience they have in previous shows and what they know about human psychology and television and stuff to piece these scenes together so the viewer at home never notices a thing. And the, the, the less people notice of all that psychological side of TV, the better job the um, producers and editors did. Um, anyway, I got a little sidetracked. My, my train of thought was derailed, but I think you get my gist. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cliff, getting back to uh, North America here, uh, what, what – uh, what are some of the um, more interesting findings uh, of recent that you've partaken in uh, here in North America, probably the Pacific Northwest? Any uh, new evidence, uh, castings, um, encounters that you've been shared with, that you've uh, researched uh, that, that you'd like to share? Um, well, for the most part, it's been kind of quiet lately, but it's also been winter, and things really shut down a lot in winter. Um, it's almost certainly a human thing because Bigfoots are somewhere. I don't think they hibernate or anything, but they might, you know, hang out in one spot a little longer and be a little bit less active. Um, see, uh, I've, 
I, I've picked up a number of footprint casts from a witness up in Washington recently. Um, she's been finding them in one certain area, um, not far from where she lives. And um, she started casting them this year, which is really cool. Um, yeah. She had about nine when I met with her, but I, I borrowed, I think, four of the better ones or five of the better ones. Um, there seem to be several individuals involved, so I'm currently uh, making copies of those casts to add to the data set. Um, of course, I was out with you a couple weeks ago, Shane, um, you and Derek. Um, so Derek's been uh, – I think he's publicly uh, uh, announced the nesting stuff now, right? Um, yeah. I know yeah, he's on yeah. a radio show talking yeah. – yeah, I didn't want to blow that before he publicly announced anything, but he told me about those last spring. So um, mm-hmm. I know that uh, um, I've been sitting on that information a long time, and Derek and you and, and uh, James from the Olympic Project were kind enough to invite me out to go put my eyes on them and see what I thought of them. And, and sure enough, I don't know what I think of those things. They're weird. It's like, uh, you know, like Big Bird from Sesame Street is out there making nests <laughs> under an old-growth tree or something like that. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, that's probably the most credible betting situation that I've ever seen. Um, but now the job is to go back and look for others from the literature um, to see what else can be matched to it. Uh, I know Derek and you guys uh, from the Olympic Project have been doing a great job matching it to uh, ground nests of uh, gorillas. Um, but maybe there's other um, evidence from North America. Um, from other areas um, that that show a similar structure. So now that job is on the bookworms in the Bigfoot community, the real researchers who go back and read instead of just watch YouTube videos. Because I think that if you're going to learn something about Bigfoot, you have to know whose shoulders you're standing upon. And and, and YouTube's a great resource, but man, anybody could have a YouTube channel, but it really takes research, dedication, and discipline to produce a book. Um, so I think that going back to the historical archives of the earlier researchers, all the way up until the 90s um, in particular, um, long before you know, Finding Bigfoot was on TV and everybody started writing books, I think going back to the people who were writing books before the show is the mm-hmm. best research you could do to extend your own knowledge for Bigfoot, but also look for things like evidence of nests like these. Is anyone mm-hmm. else talking about them, or is there any brief mention of big weird bird nests nearby a Bigfoot sighting? Um, I can't think of any, well, I can think of one from Ohio that I got to go back and dig up, but, um, but so anyway, those, those two things are the most recent things on my radar. Um, it, you know, the, the, the nests that Derek and you were kind enough to show me and also, um, those footprint casts, uh, but I'm going to go up and return those casts later in the week, drive up to Washington. So I'll spend another night out in the woods and who knows, maybe I'll come back with footage. <laughs> I keep my fingers crossed every time I go out. Yeah. You know, the, it was a pleasure having you up there in, in this bedding nesting area and giving your insight, and uh, you provided plenty of, of insights and suggestions and ideas um, with even possible um, contacts, and that was a pleasure. Uh, and that's, you know, I know Derek was real excited to have you up there, as was we, we all were, and I'm um, glad that you had the opportunity to witness them. Um, have you, uh, you know, uh, have you... You kind of touched upon this, but have you seen anything out there quite like those bedding nesting areas? No, no. I ran across a bear nest or not a nest, a bear bedding area in um, it was in Salal, I believe, in Northern California. Once, at least I wrote it off as bear. I didn't really see the bear in it, uh, but it wasn't like that. I mean, because this was it looked like you know like a bear doing about twenty turns like my dog does before she lays down um, or she lies down, and then. Um, so it was all flattened up and it's kind of bowl shaped stuff like these were, but these were different in that 
the 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 branches and sticks that made up the nest were clearly taken from the surrounding plants. Um, you know, it being buried in the middle of these huckleberry patches, like you know, for t- ten yards all around it or more. Like you can see where the tops of these these huckleberry branches were broken off and then brought to the spot. So that's really unusual. And as Derek pointed out that day, um, the bear biologist that he brought out there said that if this is bear, um, it's undocumented bear behavior. Um, and really, look, I, from my opinion, you know, whatever my opinion's worth, you know, looking at these nests, they're either from a Bigfoot or a bear. I don't see any other possibility. Um, but so if the bear biologist is out there saying that if it's a bear, this is undocumented bear behavior. I'd say the Olympic project either way has a win on its hands. It has either brand new behavior from a, from black bears that has never been observed or recorded anywhere else or Sasquatch nests. And either way, I'd say that's a win. You know, it's awesome. Yeah. No, no. Uh, <clears throat> I totally agree with you there. Yeah, absolutely. Um <sighs> The, the, the th- thing for me is there's a lot of exciting things um, happening now. Uh, I, I see uh, future events and things going on that are exciting. Um, I'm very, I'm a very positive, uplifting person, and I find you to be the same way, Cliff. Where do you see uh, the research of Sasquatch uh, in this, you know, going? Uh, is it are we moving in a positive direction? Or are we we backtracking? Are we getting away from our, our initial love? I don't know, honestly. Um, I think that the number of Bigfooters is clearly growing, and with that, a larger amount of real evidence will come forth. But combined with that, a much larger amount of straight-out hoaxes and um, well-meaning but incorrect observations, you know, misidentifications, will also surface. Um, I'm seeing uh, a lack of scrutiny, um, unfortunately, in the online Bigfoot community. That is a little saddening. Um, but at the same time, for my goal, remember my goal is to have an army of enthusiastic Bigfooters advocating for Sasquatches after discovery. Uh, that the people who are going out and seeing footprints around every corner and encountering Bigfoots all the time, it doesn't really matter because they're loving Bigfoots in their way. Um, I don't think it it really furthers the science of it all very far, Um, but I want people to have experiences and stuff with Bigfoot. And um, if they think they're having it, that's great. That's great. Maybe they are. I mean, I'm not there. Maybe they are. Um, Who am I to say? Because uh, convincing oneself that Bigfoots are real really comes down to personal experience. You know, something scares you and throws rocks at you, then, you know, you probably had a Bigfoot encounter, that sort of thing, you know, but some people just right. get scared and think they're there. Or um, I think a vocabulary word for everybody in Bigfoot land should be pareidolia, which is the tendency for humans to see familiar shapes and things. Um, like when you look at the three-prong outlet on your wall socket, People say it looks like a face. That's an example of pareidolia. Um, when you look at a cloud and see a horse running, well, that's an example of pareidolia. When you look at a photograph of a woodscape and you have a bunch of red circles in there of all the Bigfoots hiding in the <laughs> woods, that is also pareidolia. Um, people seeing uh, the familiar shape of what they're looking for. Um, there's a, a great verse, I think, well, it's in the Bible, right? There's a great verse that more or less says, seek and ye shall find. 
Um, I like putting mm-hmm. on the, the, the added words, seek and ye shall find, even if it's not there. So we need to be a little careful about that. So with the added numbers of the Bigfoot army um, that are going on right now, there's a lot of junk out there, unfortunately, from over-enthusiastic observers. Um, so, but I do see that some real stars, some real gems of researchers are coming up as well. Um, Nathaniel Bronis comes to mind, for example, a, a, an astounding young man who does amazing Bigfoot work and is a witness himself. Um, so he needs no convincing that Bigfoots are real. He's just out there dutifully trying to collect the data in some sort of meaningful way. Um, there, there are great new researchers that are clearly going to be leaders in the next generation of Bigfooting. Um, now, whether or not that leads to any proof, if that is one's goal or not, is a different argument altogether. But we're Bigfooters, and apparently we're not going anywhere. So um, if, are we heading in the right direction? I think we're heading in the same direction, more or less. New things are being discovered. There are people out there who are willing to uh, um, document some of the Bigfoot evidence they've been experiencing around their house. You know, that's always been one of the, the loudest criticisms, I think, from the, the skeptics is that of people like long-term witnesses or um, habituators, although I don't really dislike that word. Um, uh, if these people are seeing Bigfoots, how come there aren't more pictures or casts or films or whatever? Um, well, some people are now starting to try that, you know, despite their overwhelming urge to protect the Sasquatches and stuff. Um, and I, I get that, you know. Uh, so I, I think that more, the more knowledge that comes about, about these things, the more real evidence and the more we're actually going to learn about them, which – and, of course, knowledge is generally a good thing. You know, the more you know, the better off I think you kind of are. So uh, the, maybe the better we will get at getting more either footage or casts or evidence or encounters or um, probably most importantly, maybe we'll get better at having more compassion towards these things, you know. Well, thank you, Cliff. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, there's some – um, young people that that are basing their their career choice or their or their pursuit of a degree based on their interest in Bigfoot, um, and that that's exciting because they're you know one of the things that uh, I think would is a benefit to the Bigfoot community is um, studying different fields, having different experts. Obviously, um, you Cliff have studied a, a broad uh, amount of information re- that, that ties into Bigfoot. Um, I know that Shane does the same thing, um, and, and I do that as well. But uh, obviously, uh, to have kids that are, are coming up that, that are basing, they're going to go into the field, particular fields of science um, because of their, their interest in the subject is, is exciting to me. Um, what, uh, coming up, I know that you are uh, going to be at uh, Guy Edwards' Hot Squatch event on the 15th of, of April from 6 to 9 p.m. Um, and that uh, I also learned this evening that you have not yet started your presentation for that. Um, so I'm sure... Well, I've got um, some ideas. I've seen them. <laughs> it around. Well, that's, it's, it's, and the, I'm the, sure when you sit down to do it... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, not to interrupt, I apologize, but the problem with Hopsquatch for me is they're all locals. 
and like they've probably heard me speak somewhere else nearby, and I, I don't want to regurgitate the same stuff that I've done last time. You know, right. um, so like like the last time I spoke at Hopsquatch, I think I did something on footprint impressions or just impressions in general, and um and yeah. I, which is probably going to be my Ohio conference one. I want to revamp that with new stuff and new things I've learned and give that to them because it, it's rare that I can do uh, an. Uh, it's rare that I can do a presentation for Bigfoot nerds and I can really get nerdy with them. And Ohio is one of those times that I can do that. You know, if, when I, when I, when I speak at colleges like uh, Centralia college, I did a gig a little while ago. Um, that's generally the, why I think Bigfoot is real talk. I can't do that with um, Ohio. I can do that, but I can do the big, I can, and I can't, but I, yet I can't do the footprint nerd stuff in public, like in like the general public because it's too far above them, you know? I, they need a, right. a Bigfooting 101 course versus a Bigfoot 401 course. But Hopsquatch is somewhere in between. You know, we get a, we get a lot of real hardcore Bigfooters, and we get a lot of enthusiasts in general. So I, um, I don't want to give them the same stuff I gave them last time. So right now I'm kind of kicking it around, like, what am I really going to do? Because I could talk for a long time on many subjects, as as I've clearly demonstrated here, because I just have these rambling long diatribes and rants <laughs> and on, based on your questions, right? Um, but uh, – but what what do people want to hear? You know, so I'm kicking around a few ideas. Um, uh, uh, I'm writing some books right now, and they're really slow going because man, writing a book is pretty tough. Um, but I'm, I'm writing a couple of smaller books right now instead of one big one, and I'm thinking I'm able to just grab a couple chapters out of that. Like, what do people really want to know about? Like, what Bigfoot is? How to go Bigfooting? Maybe Bigfoot's in other parts of the world, or probably not that one because they're all Portlanders here. Like, what do they want to hear about here? You know, like. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to kick around like what in the world do these people want to know about? And then after I figure that, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of piecing it together with stuff I have. So it's, that's the fun part. But yeah. So anyway, I, I, I'm being very careful to not just regurgitate the same old stuff to the, the same crowd again. I haven't spoken at Hopsquatch since a year ago, November, but you know, there's a lot of the same people are going to be there. And I don't want to disappoint. You know, this is this is this is a home game for me. I want to make sure that I come through. Well, I can tell you that though, I I was fascinated. I'm a Bigfoot nerd, so I was fascinated by your your impression presentation, and I still um, it impacted me because of one of the photos that you showed of the Patterson Gimlin. I had never seen the the angle of the foot. Like the heel is actually in contact with the ground, and the toes are almost at a ninety degree angle up in the air. And I like, I never, I'd never had noticed that before. But and the talk about how you know morphology of of the foot and how the flexibility and all. But yeah, that that is probably a, a little higher level than than uh, the general public would be. Uh, but you'd be surprised. I think people dig here, and you know, but it definitely was a big footer presentation. So. Oh yeah. And, yeah. It's angled uh, for the Bigfoot crowd. Right. And if you're gonna if you're gonna be a public speaker in any manner, whether it's speaking in front of an elementary school class like I did for fourteen years, or speaking in front of a college class, which is what I, I sometimes do now when invited, um, you have to know your audience is the first rule of any public speaker's thing. You have to know your audience. And I know um, like when there's a smattering of children around and stuff mixed in with Bigfooters and their families and stuff okay, that's a different presentation than a bunch of like field researchers or whatever out at the Olympic project if I present at one of their expeditions. you, you got to know your audience. And I'm thinking, okay, this hop squatch, I think I know some families are coming. 
I know uh, general aficionados are coming, people who don't get out in the field necessarily, but they like Bigfoot. And I know that the hardcore guys are going to be there too. Or, and I shouldn't say guys. I, I mean, women as well. Um, I use guys as kind of a catch-all, and I guess that's a sexist thing on my part. I apologize. But um, <laughs> some excellent researchers are showing up as well. So I want to uh, make sure that I have something for everybody, you know, something for everybody. What can they do, you know? So what, what can they get into? What can they relate to? What do they want to know? So I'm working on it. And, you know, I mean, we've been talking about it for six minutes now, so you know it's going to be good because I've spent a lot of my time <laughs> focused on this. Like, what am I, I going to talk about, you know? <laughs> And I've got some ideas. Right, I'm not going to spill the beans now, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, Cliff, we have, we appreciate you uh, sharing this time with us, and uh, look forward to hearing back from you in the future. Uh, Shane and I are both shooting to be at uh, your presentation uh, on the 15th. So, if you're in the Portland area, or you want to fly into the Portland area just to see Cliff speak at Hopswatch. No additional pressure, Cliff. On Friday, April 15th, from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Quimby Lucky Lab in Portland. Um, you can find out more at www.hopsquatch.com. Always a great event that Guy Edwards puts on in Portland. And I know that Cliff is also going to be at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. Uh, go look that up on Facebook. Or, I mean, Facebook, you can just search it on Google if you want. Um, Mark Dworth always puts on a spectacular event in Ohio. Um, and like Cliff said, tons of people. It's the probably the largest Bigfooting event in the world. So um, get your tickets and get over there. Thanks again, Cliff, for joining us this evening. Uh, as always, uh, thanks to my co-host and good friend Shane Corson. Um, this is Monster X Radio. We'll be back next weekend on Sunday with another Monster X Radio. For, for everybody that's listening, thanks again. We will talk to you next Sunday. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.